G'day, Osher here. Ian Walker's on the show today. Before we get to him, we're going to talk all about democracy. And then, how shall I put this? A better way to do democracy, which I'm very excited about. Thank you for listening to this show. As you know, there's a lot of unemployment going on in the world, but there are at least three people that I know personally that still have jobs. And that is Andy, my audio producer. Rachel, my show producer, and Haley, who does all my social stuff. And I need to pay these people. So to pay them, I would ask if you don't mind, please, to appreciate that I need to play an ad. Now, you may not hear an ad, depending on where you listen and how you listen, but if you do hear an ad, thank you from the bottom of my heart for helping me pay these three wonderful people. So that after the ad, then you'll hear Ian say something cool, and then I'll be back. Here we go. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. There's a need to make our parliaments, our decision-making structures more representative. Our parliaments don't look like our population. Our political parties don't look like our population. The nature of statistics, the nature of random selection is, for any sins, we will get you a group that looks like the population. Even in just 50, 70, 100 people, you'd be amazed at the diversity a random draw of the population will generate. It'll generate blue-collar, white-collar, no-collar people, all ages, all backgrounds, all income levels. And it's just a nice thing to put alongside the parliament to say, what if these two groups together started making decisions that we could agree with? We just think the wider community would trust it more. That is Executive Director of the New Democracy Foundation, Ian Walker. And this is episode 331 of Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. Thank you so much for being here. This is episode 331 of the show uh, with Ian Walker. He is the executive director of the New Democracy Foundation. He's going to talk to us all about citizen juries and ways that we can make our democracy, our Australian democracy, and in fact, the democracies around the world, more equitable, more fair, more representative of the actual people. 
That's a great chat. If you don't know who I am, if you've never listened to the show before, g'day. I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a, a TV hosting, book writing, occasionally radio appearing on a kettlebell swinging a dad of two uh, guy. And I live in Sydney, Australia. Uh, we're currently not making any TV at the moment, though, so this is much like the rest of Australia. We're not working. And uh, this is my podcast. I've been making this podcast every Monday and Friday since 2013. And um, thank you so much for everybody that has supported this show for over the years because it's allowed me something to keep doing and indeed a, a, a little bit of income, which is nice in these incomeless times. Before we... Uh, get to Ian, my guest, I'd like to uh, thank you all very much for getting in touch and talking to me. On Friday, I asked you to email me your COVID-19 routine, how you structure your day in a day that is now beyond a commute and beyond a clock on or clock off time, beyond a shift beginning and ending, beyond a school bell ringing. How do you structure your day to make sure that you feel like you have some control in your day, because controlling the things we can gives us that internal locus of control that makes us feel better and does a lot for our anxiety. So thanks everybody that did talk me through their lockdown routines, which is great. Send us your email at gmail.com. Kelly gets up at 6.45, goes for a walk or a workout for half an hour, 7.30 in the shower, 8, gets ready for work, does the hair, puts the casual office clothes on. Uh, she uh, then does a bit of a check-in uh, on an app, makes some coffee for her and her wife, logs into work at 8.30. 10.30, little snack, two boiled eggs. 12.30, lunch with a co-worker over FaceTime. Great idea. 2.30, protein bar of green tea. I'm great. I'm so stoked, Kelly, that you put the snacks in. This is great. 4 p.m., finish work, log off of everything. 4.30 to 5.30, walk or workout, whichever I didn't get to do in the morning. Then 6 p.m., check in once again on the little app that she's got. Dinner, and then from 7 on, hang out. Do some drawing, bedtime meditation to go to sleep. That's a bloody good one. Uh, another cracking one came in from uh, Sophie who goes for a run at 8.30. Sophie's got a different job. She's a full-time master of fine out research. She's doing a degree basically. So um, 8.30, run or a walk, nine o'clock, shower, yoga, and a 10-minute meditation. Oh, I love a Savasana. 9.45 breakfast, have a quick look at social media news. 10 start my work day, only 15 minutes on the social media and news. Sophie, I love it. Limit yourself. Brilliant. 10 o'clock start a workday, 12.30 lunch, 4 o'clock finish the workday, 5, a Zoom yoga class with a friend in London. That is the best. You're doing a yoga class together over Zoom. That's the greatest. 6 o'clock, make dinner and chill with my housemates. I have many, many breaks, which include gardening, knitting, looking at the garden, love it, and appreciating the garden, love it more, baking, calling a friend, hugging my housemate, and cuddling the dog. I only schedule jobs to be one hour maximum because my attention span is kaput. Sophie, that's a really interesting way of doing your day, and I'm grateful that you gave us that. Thank you. And uh, a final one came in from Karen, who sent a brilliant photograph. I, I can't share it with you because it's a podcast, obviously, but Karen sent a photo of Fascinator Friday. So many of us are working using video chat software, you know, would otherwise be in, a, in an office with our colleagues, but now we're using video chat software. So you essentially got this locked off shot, what we call an interesting at MCU, a medium close-up. So pretty much from the elbows up. And it was Fascinator Friday. So she wore a hat. She wore a Fascinator hat. That's not all. They have Red Monday, Yellow Tuesday. I personally would have gone Blue Monday, Karen, but that's because... New Water's a great band. Uh, Red Monday, Yellow Tuesday, Wacky Wednesday, and Latino Thursday. My staff are Mexican and Brazilian. Karen, 
thank you so much for sharing that. And there's, there's, there's three fantastic examples of how people are taking control of certain aspects of their day to get that internal locus of control happening once again. There were loads more emails. Send Osher email at gmail.com. So thank you very much for everyone that, that did get in touch. A lot of people said that they appreciated the way that I talked through how I dealt with that massive anxiety punch in the perennium that I got last week. And all I'm trying to do is just trying to share about what I do when those moments come in the hope that when those moments come for you, you may also understand that, oh, it doesn't have to overtake me if I do this thing, then this thing, then this thing, whatever those things are for you that work. Healthy things, I would say, not guzzle a six pack and then go hit a poker machine. Um, <laughs> you know, if I do this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing, then things are generally okay. Because we all have those anxious moments and there will be plenty, plenty, plenty more to come. I was just thinking today, the fuck, what are we going to, like, we haven't got a vaccine for COVID-19. We're going to have to really think about how we're going to cope with bushfire season. There's only six months out. All right. We can't have a community shelter when we've got to be two arm lengths apart. We're going to have to think now about how, I mean, sure, we're going to figure out a way to do it, but we're going to have to think about how we're going to protect people who lives in those, live in those areas if we can't shelter everybody in the same space. Yeah. We're going to have to think about that. But anyway, so we're going to have to think a lot about how we're going to solve these challenges. But, you know, incredible, what do they used to say in that Kabbalah class I went to? The light only burns because electrical current is flowing through the resistance. All right? That's how a light bulb works. So similarly, you know, incredible ideas come when there's a resistance to the way we used to do things and then boom, there's, you know, an idea there. Uh, but we all have those, you know, those anxious moments and we're going to have to think about how we're going to deal with a lot of problems that are coming up. But look, honestly, right now we've been the caterpillar and we're heading into the chrysalis right now. Like the chrysalis is just about formed. Okay. We've been eating, we've been, you know, getting ready for this moment, buying all the stuff and, you know, living our lives in the way that we were living it up until only about a month ago. Now we're here. We're in this chrysalis. And uh, you know how caterpillars work. They kind of everything liquefies and then they reorganize themselves and exactly the same cells, exactly the same materials, just put themselves back together and they look like something completely, completely different. And we're in the chrysalis right now. All right. How long we're in here for, we don't know, but we're going to need to reorganize. We've got a lot of things we can use to build a new version of what we look like. But when we come out of it, if we choose to, we could become a beautiful butterfly. We really, really could. Think about the way you're living right now that would have been inconceivable just a few short weeks ago. If I sat here and told you, hey, in a month, there'll be national bulk build telehealth for everybody, remote education solutions for every kid in the country, where possible, people all over the place working from home, working different hours, no longer commuting, no longer driving on freeways, getting stuck in traffic, sitting on trains among smelly people, free childcare. If I told you that a month ago, you'd be like, you are bananas, mate. But those four things are happening right now. Those things were dreams at the start of this year. And now they're proving to be vital to our economy. Obviously, we have to think about a long-term way of, you know, figuring out how that might work. But look, the community is seeing the incredible value of having these four things alone. We get to say what our country will look like when we come out the other side of this. Despite what many people, it is not going to be business as usual because we're going to be here for a while. And over that time, as we rediscover and we readjust what things are, are valuable to us and what things are important to us, when we come out the other side of this, we might indeed come out as a butterfly. 
And to help that butterfly be big and beautiful, we're going to have to do our part, which includes taking a long, hard look at the systems that allowed us to get into the situation. Now, I come from a place where I, I personally believe, just for me, I believe that the systems which got us into this economic emergency where the chasm between rich and poor is growing more vast every single day, this political emergency where private interests with enormous wealth can influence policy well above that of the regular voter, I don't feel the same systems that got us into this situation can get us out. I don't think they are able to do that. It was Winston Churchill who famously said, no one pretends that democracy is perfect or all wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. There's different kinds of democracy. Generally, they follow either the British Westminster system, which is the one that we have, or the American system with a directly elected president and variously, you know, uh, various powers that are given to the head of state. But more often than not, no matter what the system of democracy, they all generally suffer this same problem, that undue influence, the undue influence that money has on politics, private money has on politics, and the very nature of the system, the political system itself, rewards people who spend so much time within the system that by the time they rise to power, they're so far away from actual reality that the policy they often bring into law doesn't reflect what the community actually needs. The perfect example is the failure of Australia's federal government to listen and appreciate and follow the recommendations about the long-term warnings they were getting about how their climate policy directly related to the deadly and devastating bushfires of 2019-2020. This, this concept leads me to my guest today. Ian Walker is Executive Director of the New Democracy Foundation. You can find out more about them, newdemocracy.com.au. Basically, what the New Democracy Foundation is out to do is to innovate how we do democracy. Their work is underpinned by the conviction that a random selection of everyday citizens are more than capable of navigating and making decisions about complicated political issues. Essentially, you create a citizen jury, uh, like you would uh, have a jury in a court of law. It's a lot bigger than 12 people. Essentially, you create a citizen jury. You give this jury all the skills and training and resources they would need to consider and discuss a complex issue, give them time and give them a chance to come to a common solution to that issue, and then present that solution to the government as a recommendation. I first heard about this kind of democracy on an episode of this show that I did with James Matheson about a year ago. Since then, I've been fascinated with the possibility of how we could not only take money out of Australian politics, but inject some actual reality back into policy, reality that truly reflects the will of the people. Something like 63% of Australians feel strongly that we as a country need to act on climate change. The Liberal National Coalition won government with 41% of the vote. All right? You have to govern for the whole country, not just this tiny little subset of the country. Now is a perfect time to think about how we might do things differently in this world without a COVID-19 vaccine. 
That vaccine, by the way, is at least a year away, probably closer to 18 months away. But don't forget, it took five years to come up with an Ebola vaccine. So we're going to have to figure out how we're going to do stuff. We have to think about how we might reshape our world in this new reality. Ask ourselves four simple questions. What's important to us? What do we need to start doing? What do we need to stop doing? What do we need to keep doing? We've got time to think about all these things. And as far as I'm concerned, everything is on the table because the path that we're on is very clear. It only ends one way and none of us get out of it. <laughs> okay? This is the, it's, it's very clear where this economic, global economic path has been taking us and it's very clear where that's going to end. This is happening right now. So we get a chance to think about how we might do it differently. Let's start by exploring an addition to our system of democracy that has been proven to work and as far as I'm concerned would only serve us all in a more positive way. I'm so grateful that Ian had a chance to catch up with me over Skype. Obviously, we're in lockdown, so there's no face-to-face podcasts for the foreseeable future, which could be a long time. So I'm really grateful that Ian and I had a chance to connect. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ian Walker. Ian, I'm grateful we could join each other today over the the magnificent national broadband network, Ian. Where do we find you today? I live in the Blue Mountains, actually. So while I have a highly social job during the week, I kind of like the bushwalks and the golf and the the slightly slower pace. It's a very happy place out here. That sounds delightful. Um, Just to give people a bit of a timestamp of when we're recording this, because I'm sure during our conversation we will refer to it, we are... I think this is the this is the second last week of March 2020. I just got an email today saying my kid's school is going uh, video as of tomorrow, and we don't know what is going to happen at the moment because we're at the I guess we're at the the very beginning, the opening batting of the COVID 19 pandemic here in Australia, and it's all very odd at the moment. Ian, how how are things with you? It's certainly an uncertain time that uh, it's not one of those things you can predict. And it's also interesting, like, given we work in democracy and political reform, seeing how elected leaders, and it's, it's interesting, it's probably making people feel a little more confidence in some of our elected leaders, because a crisis is, is an easier period in which to govern, because I think people drop their criticism a little bit. <laughs> I did I did have a few words to say about that uh, earlier in the year, <laughs> um, during the bushfires, <laughs> but I guess we'll get to that. Oh, they get to have a second go. No, you don't get the first crisis right. We'll get another one for you, and it's only March. It's, oh, man. So you and I are speaking today because oh, probably about a year or so ago, James Matheson, the delightful colleague of mine that I worked with for many years on television, came around to my house and told me all about a thing called sortition. And I went, holy shit, that's fascinating. Let's go to the top and let's see if we can't find someone to talk to about that because this is a really interesting thing. Because just to lay the groundwork a little, I personally, Ian, have the feeling that the kind of trouble we're in right now, not only with the COVID-19 pandemic, but also with the things like the bushfires and it, uh, essentially the extraordinary, uh, let's be honest, the COVID-19 pandemic worldwide and the death toll and the, the impact economically is really going to look like a kid's party compared to climate change in a couple of years from now. And I'm personally of the belief, and I don't know if you agree with it, that's fine. I'm personally of the belief that the systems that got us into this might not be the same systems that can get us out, particularly the systems of democracy. And so I'm fascinated into other 
systems of democracy and what else works around the world. And which led to this conversation with Jim about something called sortition. And this is, you know, something that you at New Democracy are working working very hard on. I'm wondering if you might be able to explain a little exactly what what it is that you do. Yeah, it's funny. We, we never take issue in policy positions, but the statement you just gave is one I can agree with. And that's that we need to change the system. I think everyone starts by looking at politicians and sees people, you know, in any group of 150 people, you can find some you don't like. And what we say is, well, you could elect Mother Teresa and the dynamics of elections will result in them promising everything, (laughs) occasionally doing little. Uh, It's the nature of elections. It's not the people, it's the system. Now, in terms of how we get to sortition, it's probably worth just sharing well, how I and the foundation got here. Yeah. We're privately funded by a former large political donor. And um, with Luca, he absolutely started out wanting to do political donation reform. He thought donations were at the core of the problem. Let's be clear here. So political donation reform is one of the big thing is one of the massive issues facing any democracy in a Western or developed country. And this is the idea of, say, I'm going to make up a product. Let's say big cancer-causing chemical company donates a jillion dollars to big party in power so that when big party gets in, big cancer-causing chemical company gets a bit of a slide when it comes to legislation, when it comes to environmental impact, when it comes to their play in how the trickle-down health effects of their product on the market you know, is then absorbed by the tax player in the health system, something like this, right? Oh, and even if they don't, we all think it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> we all think, uh, and it's about trust and confidence, even yeah. if they're nothing but sweetness and light. Yeah. Well, who's writing a six-figure check and not expecting something back? And this was really very much Luca's starting point. And he got in touch with the University of Sydney and their school of government saying, I want to make a difference. Who do I donate to that takes money out of politics? And really wonderfully, instead of going through to the vice chancellor's office who was hitting him up for a library, he went through to the school of government who didn't know who he was and said, you're an idiot. You don't know anything. Money will always win elections. If you ban donations today, people will buy media outlets. If you ban advertising, you start to see all the way through you can push people so that money will always influence a vote. And that's because voting's like cheering on a football team. We don't think too much about it. We just have an instinct for it. And what they said to Luca was, go read these five books, come back when you know something. And those five books were on Athenian democracy and the jury system. And that's a really nice starting point. I think we all laugh at Americans for um, electing judges. You know, you've got judges saying, I convict 99% of people who come through my courtroom. And we're left thinking, shouldn't you just be judging this on its merits? (laughs) And and that's an example where elections stand in the way, whereas jury selection, we pick 12 people at random, we get them to consider the evidence, and we ask them to find common ground. We just saw a highly controversial conviction last year of Cardinal Pell. Regardless of what people think of him, people didn't mistrust the decision. They didn't have that kind of donor reaction where you think, well, who got to you? Well, you're worried about your media profile. We just trusted a group of people who were not us to look closely at the facts and, and try to find agreement. And amazingly, they did. So that's really our starting point for what is sortition. It's random selection. We trust it to be representative in opinion polling and we trust it to be representative on juries. Let's try it in some of the big decisions governments face. And this is the way Jimmy explained it to me in that he just simply, you know, walked me through it. It's like if you get convicted of a crime, who decides whether you're guilty or not? And I said, oh, it's a a jury 
It's a jury. He goes, yes, and they're a jury of your peers. I said, yes, they are. He goes, are they elected? I said, no. Are they randomly selected from society? He said, yes. I said, but they could ultimately hold in this country, if I killed someone, 25 years to life. Well, actually, New South Wales does life without parole, which is, that's a whole other copy altogether. And these are 12 random punters that I've never met that will essentially decide my life. And we have, as, as a community, agreed that this is the best way to do massive decisions that affect the end of someone's life or, you know, the rest of someone's life. And why would we then not have that as the way we do big political decisions? Does that sound right? And we trust it. Yeah, we If do. you're looking at we don't trust decision-making, we've already got a heritage of it. You know, when I first started in this job, we're backed by a couple of former premiers, and one of them is Nick Greiner. And he said, everyone understands what a jury is, and almost all of us think it's fair. You know, juries will get it wrong from time to time, but it's not because they're corrupted. Sometimes in any system, you just get it wrong. But more often than not, they get it right. And judges actually find juries complimentary. So why couldn't our politicians also find it complimentary to say, you're going to share and make this decision together? And this is the, the, the interesting thing, because it does make a lot of sense when you and I just talk about it now. But if, I don't know, if we're trusting someone's retirement plan to people we've never met versus this person who works for this party that I have voted for, my father's voted for, my father's father's voted for, that's a, a very, very tricky wheel to get someone to hand over. Sure. But just because we see people on television doesn't make them experts. So I want to stretch the jury analogy a little further. <laughs> we don't just punk a jury in a room and ask them to work it out on their own. They get to hear from expert witnesses. Often those expert witnesses will be in conflict and people work through to work out that which evidence they can trust and rely on. Unlike a criminal jury, we ask a citizen's jury to actually provide rationale and reasoning. So if they get it wrong, the elected can actually look through their reasoning and say, I disagree with you for this reason. But at least it's substantive and based on evidence, not trying to based on, um, you know, do a doorstop and win a 10 minute grab on the news. I heard a sentiment from a Queensland politician and we avoid naming people because it looks partisan. And he said, the greatest problem in politics we've got is this ability to kill a year's work with a really good six-second soundbite and slogan. What we need is a put-up-or-shut-up mechanism. A jury is a really good way to do that because it gives everyone a hearing. We've got to stop making 10-second and 30-second decisions and actually start giving people a few months to look through and make a slow decision, not a fast one. My goodness. So not only to try to take the money out of politics, but to slow things down as far as panicking goes and, and putting policy in place that is a panic reaction, that would be remarkable in terms of what it would do for our community. I mean, you only have to look now around the world, the panic reactions of, you know, what kind of economic and social measures are being brought in to contain this incredibly deadly virus, but then kind of worry about, well, are they going to give it back when this is all over? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is probably not a great example because it is the timing is dictated by events. But the other reason to look at juries is on that track record. Look at Ireland. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but Ireland recently changed its abortion laws. Now, whatever you may think of the policy itself. They repealed the Eighth Amendment. The Eighth Amendment. How did they do that? They actually, as a parliament, recognised that this would have to go to a referendum vote because it was embedded, the right to life was embedded in the constitution. And a right-aligned government said, I want to have a jury of 100 citizens look at this for several months. And they came out with a set of recommendations that did not match what either party was actually pushing. It went arguably further than any politician was prepared to go. And what the government was able to say is that if this, if this referendum passes, 
the law which results will broadly follow the guidelines of this group. You've got a very religious country in Ireland Mm. trying to reform abortion laws. The political degree of difficulty is dialed up to 11. It's an example of how injecting a voice of public judgment to counterbalance public opinion can help leaders lead. I mean, it's a really nice case study. And they're going on to do more and more work like that. And it's why we're seeing people like President Macron in France turn to this for climate change. And we're finding politicians across the board here are getting increasingly receptive to it. And I won't lie to you, 10 years ago, not so receptive. We got laughed out of every room we went into. But as you run projects and prove it and show that it works, it's great to see people in elected office uh, taking a look and wanting to know more. How did, because there are many different kinds of democracy. There's the American, like let's head to the ones that, two that people are probably most familiar with, one from telly, um, which is the American version, which is where it's a directly elected president. We have a lower house, they have an upper house. And then the Westminster system, which is the one that we have, one of the other Commonwealth, ex-Commonwealth countries have. And it seems to me that we just kind of use those systems because they're the ones that were there when we got there and we never really questioned why. Is that kind of how we ended up with the Westminster system here in Australia? Yeah. I mean, let's go back in time. Federation in Australia 1901 and moves forward sort of 12 years before that. You had to have representatives because you probably didn't have a phone. Forget the internet. Your uh, representatives probably got to Parliament on horseback and trains. So you're building for a very different era. You're also building for a very different level of literacy. Most other systems have moved with the times. Our democracies have not been good at innovating. And that's why we operate as a foundation to try and be that little bit of positive disruption to say, what if things could be different? So we try to meet with people in elected office and and remove the barriers to them trying it. We can offer free advice. We can fund demonstration projects. We can bring together the best expertise and say to governments, if you've got a hard problem, let us try something. And that's really been a useful starting point because it's hard for the public service to recommend and do this itself because changing something is risky. And most people in government, if you get faced with two options, you take the less risky one. Yeah, I'm listening at the moment to a, you know, among all the other crazy podcast shit that I'm listening to around the COVID-19 outbreak, I'm listening to a a fascinating, fascinating documentary series about uh, November the 11th, 1975, when Gough Whitlam was dismissed. And it all came down to uh, the Prime Minister and the Governor General met. And the one that pulled a handwritten letter out of his pocket first was the one that had the upper hand in that situation. And it seems that this is completely preposterous that in this incredible time when we have speed of light communication, I mean, crikey, we are speaking. We had a video call, but we, we axed it because of the bandwidth. Thanks, um, Malcolm Nett. In this incredible time where speed of light uh, ability to communicate is international, that we still have this system designed for when the fastest way you could get a message to somebody else was through the post. You know, it just boggles my mind. Well, Osher, it's actually a little worse. People often go, if I was to say to you, where did democracy start? Well, I can just say to you, where did democracy start? And we haven't prepped this, but you would answer... Greece? Thank you. We didn't time that at all. (laughs) No elections in Greece. And people go, oh, so hang on, democracy was been around for two and a half thousand years. When did elections start? About 250 years ago. And it's a really interesting starting point to say, well, why is that? Now, one example is given, without turning this into a really tedious history lesson, you'd be familiar with the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers around the formation of the US Constitution. 
And one of the writers, believed to be Madison, said, we cannot allow ourselves to become a democracy. We must preserve our natural aristocracy by presenting people with a choice of two alternatives, both acceptable to us. And if you Google the phrase natural aristocracy, you'll hit this phrase. So in the founding of the American system, they explicitly wanted to move to elections to prevent democracy being a truly representative group of the people. Now, we're not extremists. We're not saying throw out all elections, but it does point to there's a need to make our parliaments, our decision-making structures more representative. Our parliaments don't look like our population. Our political parties don't look like our population. Now, why James brought up sortition um, and random selection is that the nature of statistics, the nature of random selection is, for any sins, we will get you a group that looks like the population. Even in just 50, 70, 100 people, you'd be amazed at the diversity a random draw of the population will generate. It'll generate blue-collar, white-collar, no-collar people, all ages, all backgrounds, all income levels. And it's just a nice thing to put alongside the parliament to say, what if these two groups together started making decisions that we could agree with? We just think the wider community would trust it more. I couldn't agree more because I'm white, straight, you know, and I do okay as far as my my income goes. And I look at the people in power and go, you have no idea what it's like to not be you. I think my my biggest thing is that at the moment, Ian, we have this system, this political system, and I went to school with kids like this. You have been either in the Young Liberals, Young Nationals or Young Labor since you were 15 or 16. You then went into politics at university. You became an underling to someone at the state level, and then you tried to you jumped over to the federal level. You have only mixed with people. Two, three, four circles of influence away from you are all within this tiny little bubble, this echo chamber of policy wonks. And then when you get to this position of power, a high member, like front benching position of power, you actually don't know what it is to, like right now today, stand in a line that goes around the corner at Merrickville Centrelink because you've never had to do that and you've never known anyone that's had to do that. You have no idea what it's like to be 400 bucks away from having no money. But this is the system we've designed. Like to win at this game, which is to steal the power of the political party that you're in and that's how people become the leader, you have to have this certain set of skills, a certain kind of personality type, this certain you know way to either play favour, horse trade, knife people, whatever you've got to do to become the winner of that game. Does that make you the right person to lead a wider community that looks nothing like these 100 or 120 people that you've got to impress in the caucus? Probably not. And I think, for me, that's the biggest downfall of what we've got here, Ian. Yeah, you've hit the careerist problem, which is a function of the system, not a function of the people. And it's something that, without telling tales, but just it shows bipartisan support. Both Lindsay Tanner and John Howard have privately commented on, and they use this situation. In all aspects of life, if you invent rules, people become good at exploiting the rules. Now, that could be claiming for a government benefit. That can be tax laws. That can be a board game. People look at the rules and over time get better at working right to the edges of it. Now, if you go back 30 years in Australia, most people in parliament had you know one to two staff members. Now, if you've got one staff member, the first thing you do is make sure that they've got a, uh, a bit of wisdom, a bit of experience, and we'll give you straight advice. Now, on average in the Australian Parliament, the total number of advisors is averages at six per MP. Huh. Now, that average is actually, you can make this even worse because of the desire for people to have one of those advisor jobs. Most commonly, you take those six full-time roles and you have two full-timers 
and you break the other four roles into part-timers because there's all these eager young graduates coming out of ANU desiring to do it. So you now have 10 staff members for MPs. 80 to 90% of those want to earn pre-selection. How do you earn pre-selection? You come up with a sharp line. You know, you be the greatest pugnacious person you can be and you try to make yourself stand out that way. Look at that top-down pressure competing for pre-selection places. And against that, and this is the Tanner and Howard point, you have on the Labor side, the, the guy on the factory floor or on the tools, on the Liberal side, you know, the small business owner, the dentist, et cetera, just to use some stereotypes. Mm -hmm. They have no chance, no chance of winning a pre-selection against one of those people, and the numbers bear that out. And an interesting way to address that, and you know what I care about is random selection. We don't care about electoral reform itself too much, but it was a Lindsay Tanner point, and he said, we actually pay the political parties for every primary vote we cast. That's our public funding of elections. So every time you vote, you're worth about $5.20 to a political party. Wow. We don't ask anything back for that. So imagine we said... There's a number. Once you go past 50% of your candidates being career politicians in a political party from your teenage years, in student politics, working as a staffer, less than five years out in a regular job, once you get over that number, we're going to start making that dollar amount go down. Now you start to change the incentives and the rules in the game. If you're a political party, you certainly don't want to be giving up you know, $5 times 8 million votes. $40 million is it's nice in anyone's. So you start to change how you would look at your pre-selections. Now, you can set that number anywhere you want. Maybe we don't want more than 20% of people coming from that professional or careerist background. Yeah. But I share just an example of even within elections, there are ways to change the rules quite fairly that will result in greater diversity in our parliaments. It's not a criticism of people who are there today. They played within the rules that were set. They played it effectively and that's just smart to operate with the incentives. But at some point, the wider community needs to have this conversation about if we're going to do democracy better, how do we build a better structure? Let's just talk about the careerist thing for a moment. I've met during this podcast, I, and I won't say any names out loud, but I've done, I've recorded over 350 of these. In that time, I reckon I've met 10 people. Let's even, I've met five people, all right? One in every six, I'm like, holy shit, you would be amazing in politics. But then I think to myself, but there's no fucking way you would ever put yourself or your family through it. Is the system that we've got right now, is it keeping the best best leaders in our community, the best people capable of leading us in times of crisis, in times of good? Is our system that we've currently got right now keeping the best leaders out of that leadership job? I mean, arguably, yes. The, the, the sentiment you just described has been asked at numerous functions where people in politics are there. And I've seen some of the worst answers you've ever seen. You know, people should look at the example of, insert, you know, recent deposed prime minister here, you know, look at the sacrifice made by A. Julia Gillard, A. Malcolm Turnbull, and people should want to follow in those footsteps. And you're thinking, are you insane? Who wants to go through the experience they just had? Yeah, my God. The, the incentives are not geared to it. We're not chicken little. We live in a pretty good place, aside from the last couple of weeks and, and a giant virus sweeping the world, by and large. We live in a happy place. We can just make it better. Let's leave an elected group there, but let's also involve expertise and a range of perspectives coming from across the community. And that's where we think, that's why we do start to look at it. If you, if you start to think, how do I want to solve this problem? Sortition and random selection becomes a really good way to fairly do this. Now, what about, you know, let's say, for example, the argument that, hang on, if we pull 100 and something people out of the community, aren't you going to get a couple of 
right-wing nutjobs? Aren't you going to get a couple of social justice warriors? Aren't you going to get a couple of people who are just a bit odd? Um, you know, <laughs> what about that? Yes. Yes, you are. That's society. Everyone deserves to be represented. I've led just on 31, I think it is now, demonstration projects. Absolutely, you get a, you get a couple of people who are a bit out there. I'll add to your list about probably 10% of the population is functionally illiterate as well, but we include their voice. I'm not saying this is an expert process. I'm saying it's a really good way to get a representative group of people together. Now, the great shock absorber built into this is a good citizen's jury process takes a lot of time. Now, this lets people mix with one another and work with one another. It gives them time to learn. And the person who is maybe not so good at listening or not so good at learning, depending on what impairment you wanted to raise there, still gets a chance to meet and discuss it with other people who've maybe read more or everyone gets the benefit of everyone else's questions. And the second thing is we do look at, much as the jury needs 11 out of 12 people to proceed with a decision, we set an 80% floor for a decision in a room. Now, this means that a very small minority can't hold a group hostage, but it does mean you can start to get an overwhelming cross-section of people together and supporting it. So, yeah, we will absolutely get a few strange people in, but we'll get them in the exact proportion or pretty much the exact proportion we see them in society. Now, I'm going to push it back on the elected system. I think there's a bit of a personality skew there as well. Yeah. I think you find we're getting a lot of our type A personalities who are, let me be on the news and tell you everything I think all the time. Yeah. And that's a personality skew where quieter people who don't like conflict are excluded from our decision-making system. Yeah. And perhaps that's a flaw as well. Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So talk me through how it you know, might work. Let's say, for example, you mentioned before President Macron's citizen jury on climate change. Can you talk me through like roughly how might that work and, and what would the stages and what would the processes be? I think just drowning it in an Australian decision. Okay. I, I want to talk about healthcare, if that's okay. Let's do one. Yeah, absolutely. Like, if you can give us a direct example, just so people get their heads around. Because, you know, we hear that, and Parliament debated late into the night and they've come down with this. Like, what, you spent 45 minutes on it before a bell rang and your government cars all <laughs> took you home? No, you didn't debate it. You just shouted, waved some papers at the other and blamed them for this isn't as bad as it was when you were in power, and then you went home. You know, that's bullshit <laughs> when it comes to legislation that's going to affect millions of people in our country. So let's let's talk about something that's closer to home. What's, some, what's something Australian that you could perhaps, you know, build an example around. So it's bullshit, but it works, unfortunately, <laughs> is that's why they do it. So as long as you get reinforced, the other the other side are all much more terrible. That's the core sentiment they're going for. And Osher, if, I was going to say, if you or I had an election, you've got ratings. You do have to worry about public opinion. At least I'm free of it. But if my job depended on a vote every few years, I think my behaviour would be different as well. So jumping to your actual question, yes, sir. while I don't freelance too much, I want to take you back. Do you remember there was a commission of audit? Now, during Tony Abbott's government, he commissioned the commission of audit was designed to look at government spending and he got Tony Shepard to do it. And it came back. And this is where I'm hoping a light bulb will go on and you'll remember this. But it came back with seven dollars to go to the doctor. And this got called the GP tax. I remember that. Yes. Okay. Most people remember this. It was about five years ago now. And people went bananas. $7 to go to the doctor, it was the end of the world. A year's work, several million dollars on an expert report, and that got killed in 24 hours. Now, the example I want to give is imagine this being handled differently because the underlying problem is still there. We work to five principles on a deliberative process. One is I'm going to randomly select a representative group of people. Two, I'm going to expose them to multiple competing sources of information. 
Three, I'm going to give them abundant time to explore this and work out. Four, I'm going to give them a pre-agreed level of authority about what's going to happen to what they recommend. And fifthly, and where we start, is we're going to ask them a question, not sell them an answer. People hate being told what to do. Don't pre-cut your solution. I'm going to ask people this question. How can we pay for the health system we want? Now, you see that's an open question, mm. Osher. That's free for you to go anywhere. You can increase taxes. You can increase user charges. You may choose to solve this any way you want, but it's not geared to either bigger government or smaller government. It just asks you to solve the problem in front of you. Now, we would notionally take juries of people, 30 to 40, around the country, and it would only take about 14 locations to cover the country in terms of actually saying, hey, someone like me is involved in the decision. Because as we started in Parliament, that's what we're not quite seeing today. Yeah. So you go into regional Queensland, regional New South Wales, obviously the capital cities, a few regional centres and rural and remote. We take those 14 locations. I'm starting with this randomly selected pool of people just roughly matched to the census profile. So we make sure that we cover all ages, 50-50 gender and a mix of income groups. These people are sent a background on the topic. So how do you pay for the health system you want? You probably get a 200 to 300 page briefing book sent to you three weeks beforehand. Now, this is the view of the public sector and the government, and it gives you a grounding of this is the starting point of the situation. This is how many people go through the health system. This is what an operation costs. You know, we sit here today, how much does an appendectomy cost? I've got no idea. How much does cancer treatment cost? I've got no idea. Unless you know the cost of things, you're offering an opinion, but we can help people get to judgment. Now, you might be thinking, who's going to read that? Think of what I said about that fourth principle of authority. Yeah. If I tell you that in six months, your recommendations will go to the floor of parliament and will be responded to personally by the health minister and the prime minister, I've just changed your incentives to read. And groups of 40 respond really, really well to this. We've got a lot of experience with people reading incredible detail because your opinion now matters. Yeah. In a voting environment, you're one of 16 million people. Your rational choice is not to read anything. Your rational choice is to play with the dog and yell at the TV. <laughs> Your rational choice is to watch as, you know, I, I won't pick on any of your shows, of course. I don't want to be that negative. Go right but ahead. Your, your rational choice is not to actually engage with a deep topic. So in this environment, I would have these people meet six or eight times, each meeting about three weeks apart. And the core question I'm going to give them is, to make an informed decision, what do you need to know and who do you trust to inform you? So they're going to start working out what they don't know and pick multiple sources to answer that. Now, they might well hear from the AMA a nurses' union, private health insurance providers, hospital operators, they might start to say, well, it's, it's really interesting what they do in Finland. Can we have an expert from Finland? Mm. And with the joy of Skype, mm. we can arrange that and actually get people exposed to expertise. Yeah. It's actually the great use of technology is to connect people with expertise, not to give everyone a click-to-vote experience. Now, over time, they'll start to work at the information that is critical to them. And then we spend about half the project essentially expanding their knowledge and then we say, if the Prime Minister was in front of you now, what would you want to say to them? People are quite good at distilling down a couple of bullet points. Now, what we're going to do is get people to say what they want to say and then give a rationale for what they're saying. It. And the time is taken as people say, I don't agree with that. It's not a voting environment where we vote things up and down. We ask people, what is it about the statement you don't like or can't agree with? What would need to change about it for you to find agreement? And it's interesting that people... It's a brilliant exercise in often the dissenting view, someone will say something and the rest of the group goes, oh, yeah, that actually I agree with that as well. That does make it much better. People are capable of finding agreement if you give them time. 
And that's really the magic ingredient. We do far too many things in public decision making with, you know, here's a pre-cut solution from the government. You've got 30 days to comment. You can only offer a comment online. It's all individualised. These decisions affect us all and common ground is what's of value, not really of having the 51% stand on the 49%. So that's a snapshot view of how we operate a deliberative process. No doubt it's, it's raised more questions than it's answered, but that's why we've got a chunk of time together. <laughs> no, I dig it. And I think that's the beauty of the podcast format. And that's why I love it. It's why I've done it for seven years is you actually get to go, all right, let's spend an hour talking about this. Let's not spend three minutes trying to talk about this between pop songs, which is what I used to try and do. It was very, very difficult. <laughs> um, I did a Sky News interview where I only had two minutes oh. and they asked a they did a polling question about whether you thought this was a good idea. And I had to say to the host, who's a wonderful bloke, Nick Reese. And I said, I'm sitting on TV arguing against opinion polls and you've run an opinion poll on it. That's impossible, isn't it? Like that's, um, yeah, we think opinion polls are part of what's wrong with democracy. They're like page three girls. If you go back in time, you used to have a page three girl in a swimsuit or half a swimsuit. And people thought it's a bit of a giggle, but it's maybe not great for society. Maybe that's what opinion polls have become. They're that little bit of eye candy that we look at when we open the newspaper. But there's a point to pull back and say, maybe these are not great for how we want our society to be. It'll be a tough pill to swallow, but we no longer have the Winfield Cup and the Benson and Hedges cricket. Occasionally things that are not good for us, we decide to stop doing. We don't offer issue views, but things change with the times. It's, it's yeah. harsh to judge people by past timelines. Yeah. But in this environment of change, again, come back to the fact that what's not changing Our parliamentary system looks pretty much identical to how it did 120 years ago. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, when it comes to these 40 people... 30, 40 people in 14 different, you know, locations. When it comes down to the day that it's handed over to the minister in charge, can they, similarly to what they did with the $7 GP tax, can they just go, yeah, no, I don't like that and throw it away? How are you proposing to put the value of this jury of Australians to be equal to that of of the MPs and the people that are making the decision? You make a great point. And the degree of authority we currently agree with governments undertaking this is essentially a commitment that the citizens' report is public immediately, secondly, that they'll table in Parliament and allow free debate, and that they will respond to it in writing within 30 days and then in person for at least an hour. So we're trying to make a good offer to the citizens. Now, in practice, through these 30-odd projects, the adoption rate of decisions is over 90%. And the reason why is kind of obvious. I'm the undertaker here. People only hand us decisions which have not been able to be resolved by any other means. 
So at the point that you commit to a citizen's assembly, citizen's jury process of this nature, you're probably open to anything that is not the status quo. So you've done 31 of these. Can you give us an idea of some of the issues you've had to deal with? Sure. Budgeting for the City of Melbourne. So City of Melbourne is a $400 million a year council. About 255 of that comes from local rates, from residents and businesses. They just come out of an election where if you added up the election commitments, they were $1.22 billion overspent for the next 10 years. Oopsie. So (laughs) now here's your political choice. You're a councillor. Do you walk away from your election promise or do you increase taxes by what would have been over 40%? Wow. You don't take either choice. We asked a group of 43 citizens, how can we live within our means? Now, again, you know, open question, you're free to increase taxes, you're free to reduce services, etc. In the solution that they came up with, we often use the line, there's something for everyone to hate. They did agree that rates should start going up. They'd been held below CPI for over a decade. They equally, they looked at unused government buildings or very lightly used, like less than 10 days in a year, <laughs> and said, sell them. It's ridiculous how underutilized they are. They agreed for some fee-for-service elements to go up. What they did was solve the problem in front of them. Now, the council ultimately acted on the vast majority of that. And there was a quote from Stephen Main. Now, Stephen Main, you may know, he was a councillor on City of Melbourne at the time. He was a former advisor to Jeff Kennett, and he's known through his work through the Shareholders Association. And he had said... It's not that as a council we couldn't agree on this. It had got to the point where we couldn't even discuss it because the first person to bring up, I think we're in a little bit of financial trouble, will be you can start the normal political debate. You just want to raise taxes Mm. or you just want to cut services. It got beyond the point they could discuss it. The citizens brought in what amounted to a grand bargain. No, the council didn't adopt it all. So one example was citizens said we can actually live with rates increasing 5% per year for the next 10 years to catch up. And the council moved at 4%. And a journalist asked me, so is that a failure? The jury got ignored. No, the jury showed what they could live with. And if you think of a group of elected reps went from operating inside a matchbox to operating inside a moving box, their range of options got bigger and they selected within that. That revenue measure closed $770 million of that gap. And it also goes to another objection we often hear, aren't these projects expensive? Yeah, this is absolutely the most expensive community engagement project, community democracy project the government can do. But if you have billion-dollar problems, hmm. spend a million dollars to solve them. Oh, man, that's, that's nothing. The, the hardest topic we've been given, uh, it was a great phone call we got when Premier Weatherill was in South Australia. We just had a Royal Commission. We're exploring building a high-level nuclear waste facility to mm. take the entire world's nuclear waste. Wow. Can you handle that? So that's the kind of problem we would respond to and then have citizens involved. And again, while the project, we did half of it really well and half of it pretty badly, what's been interesting is politicians on all sides of politics have say, wow, you'll catch a hard ball. And we actually showed that people will read, people will think, people will question. Mm -hmm. And, you know, six days later, 338 out of 350 are still sitting there engaged in a conversation is different to how we do politics today. Yeah, it really is. And I guess as well when it comes to the extraordinarily simplified version, is a, you know, the callback to what I talked about earlier, is that one mining company can take one politician, they can accidentally meet on purpose at El Cuestro up in Western Australia and have dinner together and, you know, lo and behold at the next election, oopsie-daisy, all this land just got released, and what do you know? This particular mining company just happens to be the right people who get the tender versus that mining company can't take 338 people to dinner. 
and try to win them all over, can they? And you've hit it. It's the power structures. So if you go back to hopefully Eddie Obeid is, is a nationally recognised name now, the New South Wales Parliament is obviously, if you've got 39 seats, you've got a majority. Now, within those 39 seats, obviously, if you have half your party, if you have 20 of them, you can control the government. So when someone like Eddie Obeid had his tentacles into about 15 people, you can see how he was within a hair of having a single point of power able to influence pretty much any decision. Now, the benefits of a jury are that people don't know one another. So if someone tries to corrupt one of the people and says, hey, influence this decision, firstly, you've got to be backing yourself that if you ask 10 people, they all say yes, because it only takes one person putting their hand up to say, hey, this person's trying to influence me and the game is up. It's a very good anti-corruption and transparency measure. Mm. I, I think I'm actually a bit less cynical than you, Osha. I think lobbying is almost, it's a necessary part in our system today of how decision makers get access to information. In some respects, I'm a lobbyist. I turn up to politicians asking for something. It's just that what I ask for you think is palatable. But at the same time, we're all trying to use a little bit of influence to shape a decision. The challenge here is who would be happy to do that transparently? Who would be happy to do that recorded and have it shared with anyone? There's an argument that says juries can actually be a really interesting lobbying interface because those who want to make a case to government should be prepared to do it with the public watching as well. Mm. We elect governments because we trust them to do the right thing and to hold up their end of the social contract, all right? We will earn money. We will pay our tax. You will make sure that we have health care. You'll make sure the trains run on time. You'll make sure there's food on the shelves, all right? That's the deal. You'll make sure that everything's safe and everything's fine. You'll leave us alone. We'll leave you alone. That's the deal, right? And we trust them to do that. Do you feel that we are, as a community, ready to trust massive decisions, particularly around something like climate change, particularly around something like a nuclear waste dump. Are we ready to trust those decisions to just general members of the public? Do we trust enough in the general moral compass of the community of Australians for these choices? Yes, if we see them. And this is often the hardest thing for governments to swallow, is that they often want to run a jury quite quietly and then see what answer emerges and trumpet it. In order for this to be trusted, on the very first day we put people in a room, think of that health example I gave earlier, yeah. we'd want the TV crews there then. And you get to meet people who say candidly, I got this invitation out of the blue, I don't know anything about it, I guess it's interesting. And if you see them two or three times, you decide you'd like them, and then at the end you hear the decision. Now contrast that, if you hear the decision in isolation, your first reaction will probably be, I bet this all is all the minister's friends. I bet this is all being cooked up by a department to filter out voices they don't like. A critical part of this is it only scales by letting those people talk to the media. And because they're not media trained, because they don't get talking points, we only give those people one guideline. Talk to your own personal experience and don't forecast a result. Because forecasting a result is rude to the other participants mm. and it starts to get traction of its own. Just treat everyone else who's giving their time with the same respect and talk to your experiences. Where projects have enabled that to happen, we see very, very high levels of trust result. And again, I go back to the Ireland Eighth Amendment example. Those people were covered fairly heavily through the press. And not just the result, but there was polling, exit polling done as people voted on that referendum. And over 60% of people could recollect something that the jury had said in public. There's slightly lower numbers, of course, in did it influence your vote? Because we all want to think nothing influences us. Yeah. That's an amazing degree of penetration of I heard something about it and I engaged and I didn't hear a voice from either the right to life group or the 
pro-choice group mm. who will always take the most extreme arguments, they actually heard people wrestling with someone. They heard people changing their minds. That's one of the great things in public discussion that we don't see because of the nature of our political system. Yes. It is impossible for <laughs> someone in elected office to go, I tell you what, their idea is much better, so I think we go with that. <laughs> now, when I pick people at random, they're completely open to that. We see really interesting exercises. We just did something for all of ACT rezoning and land use because land rezoning is very controversial. And we asked people to explore biases. And partly it's so that they look at the biases of the speakers that end up in front of you. People talk about the ABC being biased and they get the wrong end of the argument. Everyone has a bias is the point. There is no neutrality. Just try and expose yourself to a mix of biases. And in doing this exercise, we saw a lady stand up and she said, look, you're asking me to look at biases for speakers, but I have a bias. I like my suburb as it is. And no matter the evidence I'm shown, I probably don't want it to change. And a man next to her laughed in a friendly way and he said, I have a bias. I own a home here. And if the zoning changes, I'll make a ton of money. So we all have a bias and it's about working that point out. And that's what we think really adds to public discussion. Mm. Having people freely able to say, I have a bias. I'm open to changing my mind. I've heard a better idea. And we saw people through that process. I saw a lady who you'd probably particularly identify as being more environmental and active on the political left. And she was looking really concerned at a certain point. And as you can imagine with a jury, once we've got them, we need to retain them all the way yeah, through the end. Yeah. So we just check in and said, how are you going? And she said, oh, because she'd broken off from the group in a coffee break. You're kind of looking for those outliers because they're halfway to the door. And she said, oh, no, I'm fine. I'm just finding it really personally confronting. I just heard from 12 experts in the morning session. And the person I agree with most is a property developer. <laughs> what a great thing <laughs> yeah. for someone to actually be able to say aloud, say, through every media article, I've hated this kind of person for 40 years. But now that I hear in person, ask questions and get in detail, now that I get beyond the two minutes and get into just a 30-minute engagement, your level of response changes. And because her job did not depend on her not changing her mind, she was happy to change her mind. And that's a good thing. Mate, Ian, those three things, just to have a politician say, I changed. even if we just allowed her, if we just said, listen, ScoMo, we get it. You can say you were wrong about the RFS funding. We understand. Just do the right thing now, pal. It will forgive you. You know, <laughs> you know just but it's not. That's impossible to ask. You you yeah. can't ask for that. Yeah, okay. Because they're subject to a public opinion mechanism at the end. Ah. it's suicide. It's just all the clips will be recorded. Yeah, and they'll be played in that three week window. Yeah, of, I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. Those six seconds that'll undo it all. I mean, I guess we have set that system up, haven't we? We have allowed the system to flourish. The system yeah. that can take someone apart. I'll never forget. Like even though it's got nothing to do with me, in 1988, Dukakis famously just absolutely reverse Bradbury himself before the American election by being photographed in a tank with a. Do you remember that photo? George Dukakis was the uh, Democratic front runner, and he was gonna win it. I just remember the photo of him in a tank. You know, it was like, oh, he's a warmonger. That's it. It's all over. The whole thing just ended with one picture. One picture, but that's the system we've allowed to propagate. And it's extraordinary that we're having this conversation because very, very important topics, very, very important decisions that need to be made that affect every single one of us on this earth, not only this country, we are allowing, as you said, to be held hostage to the right person with the right quip in front of the right camera at the right time. And that is a real, real shame that we've allowed that to happen. When you do see these juries and when you do see the the reactions coming down. 
What does it tell you overall? And you know, just asking for your your just general kind of read on the room, because I'm sure you have people who are from all different moral backgrounds. People who are agnostic, people who are atheist, people who are absolute Pentecostal Christians, people who are super devout Muslim, people who are Buddhist, people who don't care. What do you know about the just the moral compass, the general moral compass that you observe in these groups of people? Oh, it makes you an optimist, and as an optimist, you start to realize people are capable. We're capable of finding agreement. I probably started from more the big stick, one supreme leader school of government. And as this turned up in a subject that I studied many years ago, and I started to realise this is difficult to break. And it's random selection. It's because you can't caucus. You bring people together and then you send them back to their lives. But it makes you an optimist because people do solve the problem in front of them. And I remember specifically your point of self-interest. We did a project in Marrickville in inner Sydney. Now, I don't know how well you know the area. I know you've got to go past, I'm pretty sure there's a passport check if you get past Bondi Junction. <laughs> but if you go to Marrickville, it's, um, you know, the pavements are cracked. They, they'd really run down yeah. um, by not putting up rates. I think rates are 60% less than in the neighbouring suburbs. And we asked a group of people about what their infrastructure priorities were, simply because the list of things to be fixed and the bucket of money didn't look anything like each other. And two things happened. One, people looked at all the pavements, and there was $5.5 million of pavement work to be done, and they just smiled and said, yeah, we don't care. Just spray a bit of yellow paint there if there's a big gap in the pavement. But by and large, that's the character of the area. Don't worry about it. Now, for those of you who know Marrickville, it floods. It floods really badly a couple of times a year. It goes up to people's doorsteps. And we'd looked at this, and because we know the addresses of all the people we've picked and we're spreading them across an area, out of 32 people, none of them actually lived in the flood-affected zone. But one of the decisions that they recommended through to council was the $600,000 set aside for a stormwater works was woefully insufficient, and they pushed that up to over $3 million. A really nice example, they said, well, it's just a basic level of how your suburb should work. It just shouldn't be getting repeatedly flooded up. We've got to spend the money there first. It was just one example of not acting out of self-interest. Mm. I think people want to do what's right. And if we ask them in a polling environment, if I pick up the phone and you're busy with something and you say, what do you want? I want lower taxes. You just respond. If I let you think, you will probably come to a fairer decision the more time that we give you. I'll be blunt. The projects that we've broken that didn't generate a result which people would stand behind all did because we didn't give them enough time. And if people feel rushed, they then start to mistrust and will not come to a decision. So at least we started to understand what makes this work? What makes it work is abundant time. And with time, it's not about being left or right, big government or small government. People can find what they think is fair and will stand behind it. I can still remember my very first project. It was the city of Canada Bay and Mayor Angelo Tarekas was the mayor and he was interested. So we spoke with all the councillors and one of the councillors, she was very concerned that the jury, she said, if this group comes together and recommends ending meals on wheels, I just can't stand behind it. And it came from your where you've started is, will people do things that are unfair because it only affects a small part of the population? And we said, it's very unlikely to happen, but that's why you're the elected group and you're taking a set of recommendations from people. And what came out was abundantly fair. No one goes after small groups. They think about the society they want to live in. And what we really do is get away from a wishlist democracy, which is what elections are, what's my next free thing, in favour of a trade-off democracy. There is a finite pool of money and you need to say no to some things. Our elections are very notable 
for having people say, here, I promise you a bullet train, here, I promise you a handout, and never saying where the money comes from. We put people in a trade-off environment and say, what do you want and what are you willing to pay for? Where in the world has this been implemented or does this get implemented the best in your opinion? The Irish standout is an absolute exemplar. And by their own measure, they got a bit of good luck along the way. Now, we obviously, this is a small uh, niche field, so we know a lot of people who do it in different places. Ireland, if you go back in time, obviously, when when the financial crisis hit in 2007-8, it hit Ireland like you would not believe. The Celtic Tiger just, yeah, it just destroyed the community, destroyed it. And at the same time, they also had the child abuse scandals uh, besetting the church, as has happened. in. But the church was a much bigger part of life in Ireland than Mm. it is in Australia. So really, in the spirit of don't waste a good crisis, a very small experiment was run, essentially to say what should change about the Irish constitution. And it was done as almost an experiment. But the researchers managed to get in touch with the parliament and say, I'm going to take 100 people to look at this. You know, would you at least receive the report? And then in their stroke of good luck, the parliament said, well, we don't want it to be 100 random people. We want it to be two-thirds citizens and one-third MPs. And the organisers hated this idea, but, you know, went along with it. And it turned out to be a stroke of genius because by mixing those two groups of people together for, I think it was 10 weekends, all of a sudden the politicians saw that a random selection of people was capable, respectful, could find common ground, could address trade-offs, because they were used to the really angry people who get in touch with them to their electorate officers who are demanding something. Conversely, the randomly selected people started to view their MPs as a pretty reasonable group of people and gave them a bit of latitude in discussions. Hence, when this started to roll through, you had this trust environment in the Irish Parliament where as this Eighth Amendment and previously marriage equality law came up, there was bipartisan support to say, why don't we refer to one of those groups? So what we do as New Democracy is in effect formalised in Ireland. The Prime Minister's office has an office of deliberation where the Prime Minister can choose to hand off an issue and see a project run like this. And, and we obviously, we know the folks in that office. So where New Democracy exists as a charity, independently funded today, we might see a day where we very happily close because you formalise the government's ability to say on specific issues referred to by a government, we want to hand this out for a separate group. That's why we look at Ireland as such an exemplar Mm. as taking on hard topics. We know they've got a couple more hard topics in the pipeline and we're having a chat with a little bit of, obviously, we are able to offer technical advice on how this is done and equally speak to Australian federal politicians to say, take that first step, give us an issue, and we'd probably like to do it in the same blended approach. We're going to take a cross-section of people from across the parliament, but we're going to take a big group of randomly selected people and you're going to work together to solve a problem. Why not take a look? Why not see what it generates and see if we can get past an impasse that you're otherwise facing? As we speak, and I, you know, I talked a bit about this on my on my show on on Monday. As a global community, we really have been standing hesitating at the top of the water slide for a long time, and you know we know we've got to go, we know we've got to do something, but we just don't want to do it. And now COVID nineteen has come up and shoved us in the back, <laughs> and we are on the flume. Where do you see sortition or citizen juries playing a role in putting the world back together on the other side of the COVID-19 pandemic? Oh, that's a, that's a shocking question, Osha. Um, I think we need to get out the other side and we'd be hesitant about being any expert right at the moment when it's a, a medical focus. I think, I mean, we're definitely looking at the, look at the UK after Brexit. Yeah. 
they hit a point where they realised their public decision-making structures didn't work out for them. It's not about being for or against Brexit. It's not about being leave or remain. You took an impossibly complex topic that involves trade, movement of people, regulation of products, hundreds of billions in budgeting, and you gave people a yes or no ticker box way to address that. It is one of the dumbest things I can picture. And it's not about the decision. You can argue the merits of leaving or remaining equally. There are great reasons for the UK to leave the EU. There are great reasons for it to stay. I think people need to step back and say, there's actually no right and wrong answers for most things in society. I'm not going to go to extremes like murder, et cetera, but how we fund our health system. There isn't a right and a wrong answer. There's an answer that the vast majority of the community says, that seems fair enough. I can live with it. And that's all we're aspiring to get to. I think Brexit's a nicer example in that regard. Mm. As to where we get after COVID-19, let's cross that bridge as, as we get there. But arguably, governments are, are, you know, a crisis is in many ways an easier time to govern than when it's the normal, because we remove the partisanship and yeah. we remove the overhead of an election. Once it gets back to business as usual, we'll see, I would suggest, the same incentives in the system <laughs> haven't gone away. Yeah. And we'll see how we address that then. But the challenge always is we've got used to dividing up and trying to work out how to get to be the 51% yelling at the 49%. And we haven't built a common ground ethos. In very hard topics facing societies from energy futures and climate change through to health systems and indeed welfare funding, we often set up two oppositional groups to go punch and duty at one another. And it's a change of thinking to say, what if instead of trying to put in two opposing views, we now add in one common ground view. And that's what we've been seeking to achieve. So, Ian, people listening by now, they've listened to us talk about this for an hour. I would be surprised if if many people listening weren't like, I'm on board. What do we do? (laughs) What do we do now, Ian? What's the next move? How can we help? So how can you help? Believe it or not, this has proven to be a really hard question to answer, mainly because the nature of what we do is advocacy and lobbying driven. So it is pretty top down. Now, we've been interested in having a bit more bottom up support through things like, you know, showing a large number of supporters on Facebook is a wonderful thing because politicians do respect to the law of large numbers. Our whip would uh, get a little stronger at the point that you have 50,000, 100,000 people liking you on Facebook. I think it's a terrible thing and a stupid thing, but it's the way the world is. So we go with it. Um, (laughs) We have no choice but to live by that law of large numbers. Yeah. Uh, I want to emphasize that at a really simple level, that's step one, is, you know, we are New Democracy Oz on Facebook. I'm going to confess, Osha, I don't even have a Facebook account, Mm -hmm. so it's run by a lovely volunteer. But at the point that that number starts to grow, why do politicians listen to GetUp? It's a genuine question. They have about a million emails. They have about 13,000 people write them a check of around, I think the average is about $30. Okay, so 13,000 people, but GetUp gets listened to. Now, we would actually argue that they are part of the problem because what they're trying to do is do more of the slogans just coming from a different perspective. Mm. What we've had experience with, the number one thing any listener can do is simply write to an MP that you like, you know, could be local, could be just someone you like, could be a candidate, and say, just write in your own words, no form letter, and say, I'm interested in democratic reform. I'm interested in how you think we can make the system better. And yeah, I'm interested in this use of random selection and juries. What do you think? 
Because what we've seen is that everyone who gets in touch with a politician today says, I want, I want, I want. And they're just telling people it's a demand and they don't answer it. Now, you contrast that with someone asking a question about a topic they clearly care about. You can't run for office without a care for democracy. And it will engage them because you're asking a question of ask what you think. And as those politicians, they've only got to hear from four or five people. The numbers are that small saying, I'm interested in democratic change. And it's such a prompt when we're there in and able to speak with people firsthand. They go, oh, I've heard a bit about this. Oh, I've had people ask me about it. And those numbers are small. So my one tiny request is, I hate to be shallow, is like us on Facebook. We won't be your most interesting and vibrant contact, but know that you're lending support. But the second thing is, if you've got 10, 15 minutes and you're sitting over your laptop, pick an MP, write to them, and just send them a 10-line email. Not war and peace, but just say, I'm interested in democratic reform. Don't attack them. Just be nice. Recognise they've got a pretty ordinary job most of the time and see what they say. And that is the most helpful thing we've found. Bloody magnificent. Uh, Ian, I am, uh, as someone who has in the past lost his mind over despairing of the future, knowing that someone like you, and that I'm sure there are many, many, many other people like you around the world are working hard to try and find better ways that we can govern ourselves, does give me a lot of hope, mate. I can't be more than grateful for the amount of time that you've given me today. And I should point out, you were very kind. We were supposed to meet face-to-face, but you said, I've just come back from overseas. I know you've got a new baby. Let's do this over Skype. So, <laughs> Very grateful. If, if I manage to kill the bachelor host, I, I can't imagine the array of women who would be having further cause to try to kill me. There's only one. So it's my wife. Someone... So... <laughs> no, no, I'm talking about your, your legion of female fans. Oh. If I was to infect you in some way, of course she would be front of the queue, but uh, unfortunately I've heard too much as in the preparation for this interview that your fan base is is rather more extensive than I would have liked to admit, and it's a degree of competition that many of us could do without. Well, Ian, don't worry. They're all very, very clever people, and um, they dearly love these kinds of conversations because you don't make 350 podcasts that are at this level of conversation by accident. You only do it if it makes sense, right, if it's financially viable, and the download numbers clearly show that many thousands and thousands and thousands of Australians are really wanting to sink their teeth into deep, long chats like this one. And they have been for seven years. So, you know, don't worry about the people that happen to enjoy the work I do. They're all really bloody good human beings. I know. I watch it. Well, that's the point is I was more going to the fact that you've achieved some kind of male nirvana where each woman looks at you as the ideal husband. Therefore, <laughs> to um, if I was to infect you, my, I would be oh. under siege and not in a happy way. Ian, I'm far but from the to your To your more sensible point, Osha, <laughs> the one thing I've taken away from this job is people have a real interest in the world around them yeah. and they're capable if you give them a chance. We just want to build them a structure that gives them a chance. Yeah. Right now, government hears stupid things because they ask stupid questions in stupid ways. If we can build a mechanism for injecting thinking into our public discourse, then we are 100% confident that people will put their hand up when they're invited and come along. And that's not just the uh, 40,000-odd people you've got following your podcast, but (laughs) across the community, people are capable and interested. Tell me, it's the Office of Decision. Is that what we're looking for? What are we, Amy, what's their dream? I'll go one step beyond. An Office of Deliberation is what Ireland's done. Yes. If you ask about what motivates Luca as the 10 years Luca and Anita Belgiorno Netis have funded this foundation and Luca has committed for the next decade, essentially, that, that we're going to keep going, whatever the financial crisis does. Our goal 
is to see a randomly selected House of Parliament. Wow. I want you to picture the day where, if not the Senate, then a third house, and, and look at Australia. We've got our spare Parliament House just sitting there, old Parliament House, that where a government of the day cannot find agreement, they pass it to this House of the People, just 100 people we pick at random. And we would say the threshold is if they can reach 90% agreement, then it's binding. Osha, that's the goal. When we randomly select one of our houses of parliament, we can still have an elected group. That's when we think we will have the best democracy in the world. A third house of parliament. That is absolutely fucking fantastic. Oh, my goodness. And, Osha, we can trial it. Why not run it for two years? The (laughs) Senate has the power to delegate some or all of its powers to an appointed group. All of our constitution looks at the rules for elections. But power can be delegated to an appointed group. What is a random group if not an appointed one? They're not elected by definition. Imagine starting to trial this for two years. It would cost about $28 million, but in the context of our $550 billion federal budget, maybe that's an investment in democracy that's worth trialling. I would caution you, if if that's the first thing that any of your listeners (laughs) put in front of an MP... They may fall over, but let's crawl, walk, run. Let's see the juries, but know that we have a structural way to implement this. No, don't worry. I'll, they'll have an hour and 10 minutes before they get to what you just said, because that's just solid <laughs> gold. All, oh, now, and I love this because I've seen psychologists for many years. That's the only reason I'm here, but they all call what just happened. They all call that the doorknob moment where they finish the hour with the client and the client puts the hand on the doorknob. And as they turn the doorknob to leave the office and go, I did tell you that my husband, you know, once did this horrible thing, right? And then they go, what? hold on, what? Really? So what you're saying there is that legally the structures are already in place that if they wanted to, the Australian Senate could delegate some of their power to another party, in this case a third house, and then that, that would be binding? They, they can choose to do that, absolutely. Holy- you can delegate some of all of your powers. I think in fairness, in fairness, you'd probably want to see some form of referendum, some form of citizens process to say, what do we want our democracy to look like? Yeah. Like, it's not just for us to impose and yeah. say this is the way to be. But I think a national conversation on how can we do democracy better, yeah. I think that would absolutely be a model that we would inject and say, hey, we want people to consider this. And if you heard several hundred of your citizens say, hey, we think this is an idea worth trialling then that would be the step that we take. So do you think someone could run this as a policy going into an election, a general election, someone who is like the leader of a party going, and I will introduce a citizen's house trial two years in the, as an election platform? Oh, look, I think having a democracy policy generally is a great idea. It's something we tried to kick along a bit before the last election with help from the University of Melbourne and the Susan McKinnon Foundation. And we got a group of former MPs, a couple of former heads of Prime Minister and Cabinet to say, hey, here's a list of 15 areas for reform. What are you willing to try? That's how we kick this along, is try to get it as part of the election discourse. It's up to politicians to work out what they think is popular. I reckon that democratic reform, particularly democratic reform involving just punters like us, will be pretty popular. <laughs> and politicians don't need a lot of pushing to suggest positive popular things. Given the current level of trust in current parliament and current governments and current leaders... I would say that the thirst is there for some kind of change, you know, some kind of accountability, some kind of, yeah, wow, that's exciting, mate. I'm at your service, all right? So whatever you need to help push this along, don't hesitate to reach out to me. I will reach out, Osha. I'm I dead keen. You're a revolutionary leader in the making, so uh, <laughs> I will absolutely be in touch. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it, man. Thanks for your time today. Uh, happy lockdown. <laughs> 
Happy lockdown. See you, Asha. That was Ian Walker. You can find out more about what Ian does as the executive director of New Democracy at newdemocracy.com.au. Thank you so much to everyone that helped me make this show. Andy Ma, my audio producer, Rachel Barrett, my show producer, Hayley Van Spagna, who did all the social stuff for me this week. Thanks also to my neighbour who came over and worked out with me again this morning. We stood on opposite sides of my yard and, you know, I gave him one kettlebell and that's the one that he touches and I don't touch it and, and we worked out together. It was really good. It's really great to work out with my neighbour this morning. We had a great chat. He's a great guy. It was super cool. So uh, between now and when we speak next on Friday, cuddle a dog if you can. Uh, call a friend if you can. Get your routine dialed in. Physical fitness doesn't happen by accident. Mental fitness is the same. All right? If you eat terribly and don't work out, you're going to get fat and get sick. All right? Same goes for your brain. You've got to... Be diligent with how much of that social media news bullshit you dig into your brain. It's essentially junk food that you're shoving into your eyeballs, all right? Think about how you're processing the thoughts, all right? That's the workout part. And then think about how you're nourishing yourself. That's the connection with other people part. You've got to do it deliberately because it doesn't happen by itself, okay? But if you do it deliberately, you get a routine going, it'll start to happen before you know it, Okay. Just get a routine going. Just do something every single day. That's all you need to do. A little bit every day adds up to a lot, all right? As long as you do it every day. That's it. Look after yourself. If you need me, send us your email at gmail.com. I hope you're okay. Take care. Until we speak on Friday, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 